We are going through the book of Hosea, and um, that's a video series that a church in Irvine, Texas, did reinterpreting Hosea. Uh, I showed you the first one last week, and for those of you who weren't able to be here uh, last week, I just think it's an excellent kind of modern way of doing it, because the whole point of Hosea is to to, to connect the pain that God's, God goes through for his people uh, with a pain that many of us either have experienced personally or you have seen somebody experience. Um, so I, I'm going to put links to the videos as they happen on the church Facebook page just so you can see it uh, and kind of get it. Even if you didn't see the first one, I think you probably picked up from that that this is a guy whose uh, wife has cheated on him and he's struggling through that. Let's, let's go through uh, the Word of God and talk about it. We're going to be on page... 636 of the Tapestry Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these, okay? Uh, if you have your own Bible, I have no earthly idea what page it is, but I'm sure it's there somewhere. Uh, so this is what we're going to read. We're going to read uh, chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through the end. So this is what it says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go. Take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of uh, the, the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblian, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rohamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will, be, they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So, uh, one of the things I love about Hosea is it is speaking specifically about God's relationship with the country of Israel. And if you remember us talking last week, uh, it can get a little confusing because Israel is the nation that is formed when the 12 tribes of Israel go into the promised land. And then after three kings, it separates. And it separates into to what I usually refer to and most other people usually refer to as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And where it gets confusing, and for me, I wasn't raised in church, and this really confused me a lot. But the northern kingdom is called Israel. And the southern kingdom is called Judah. So it gets confusing there. So when you hear Israel mentioned in Hosea, it is talking about the northern kingdom, which God said, hey, 
king's not really following my way. Solomon's made his own choice here. When his son comes, if he chooses rightly and does that, good. But if not, Jeroboam, I'm going to form a new nation with you. And he formed Israel out of Jeroboam. And it started out as another promise of, you are still a child of Abraham, and the promise is still there, and it's going to go. And Israel real quickly departed away from God. And so Hosea is at the point of where God is saying, it is an emergency, you've got to stop. And we talked about that last week, how you you talk differently during an emergency than you do when things are just kind of rough. Okay, kind of rough is one deal. Emergency is a different deal. For those of us who pay bills, you know, it's, it's a bad thing when you know a bill's coming up and you need to get money. It's an entirely different thing when they have the collection agency on you, okay? It's a different story, but I will say this, don't, well... Talk to a lawyer. Okay, collection agencies are interesting people, shall we say. No, I don't mean that. I said interesting. <laughs> Just some collection agencies don't have the rights they think they have. Or actually, they probably don't think it. They're told to pretend they have it. it this has nothing to do with sermon. I'm so terribly sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, here's what I want you to focus on. Okay, and please, I hope you kept your Bibles up. And most of you did, because we're going to talk about some names. I love names that mean things. I love family names. And there was a small problem in my family and my wife's family. And that is our family names are hideous. More importantly, it's okay if I share the the fact that your family names are hideous, right? Yeah, since I just... Pam's family names are so much worse than my family names. Okay, my family names are just like... Well, we have Clive, which I tried to force because I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan... And Pam wishes that it happened now, but, you know, it wasn't going that way. But your family names are like, would you like to share them so you have the joy of this? Hosebill. How? Okay, come on. You're, can you really get better than that? Sometimes you got to admit it. Every now and then you were jealous that you were not born in the South, not just for food reasons, Okay. <laughs> Your names are fantastic too. Oh, that's true. Okay, I'm, the difference up here is you guys just hate vowels. Okay, that's the main difference. Anyhow, I want you to think of names. There are three names that are mentioned in this. Actually, there's more than three names, but there's three kids and kids' names. Hosea is told by God to go and marry an adulterous woman. And I tend to think that what Scripture shows most of the time is, is that God calls us to do something and He shapes our desires. I think Hosea probably was in love with Gomer. Love then is a little different from now. People didn't marry for, for romantic reasons. Uh, if Ladies and gents, if you were like, hey, I'm going to marry somebody I choose, your family would have laughed at you because that's not the way it worked. And they would have been like, that's really sweet of you to think that. That's great. We're going to tell you who to marry. <laughs> Okay, um, that's the way it was then, not the slapping part, maybe. But, you know, marriage was a different story. So for God to tell him to marry someone is completely in line with what would have happened with his family. Basically, God is arranging the marriage that his family would have arranged. And I think that Hosea probably fell in love with Gomer just the way he reacts. But he marries an adulterous woman and they begin to have kids. First one is a son. Does anybody remember the son's name? Jezreel. Now, this is interesting because Jezreel is a, is a fascinating place in Scripture because some good things happen there and then some terrible things happen. A massacre happens there and it's a massacre of initially an evil person. If you think of the most evil king and evil queen in the Old Testament, you might know the king's name, but the queen's name 
has made it into popular culture quite often. If I want to say that a woman is a terrible person, yes. Ahab was her king. And Ahab was, was, was killed and Jezebel was killed in Jezreel. And Jehu, who was the one that God had said, I'm going to use you to punish this, decided to take it a bit further. He had the 70 children, 70 sons of Ahab and Jezebel massacred. Literally massacred. Like he tells them, hey, if you want to end this war, take the sons, no matter their age, and chop their heads off and bring them to me. And then he put them in front of the gates at Jezreel. And then there were 40 other people who supported Ahab. And they said, hey, we're here for peace. We see the heads. We're here for peace. And he goes, it's okay. Come on in. And you know what he does when he, when he says it's okay? Come on in. He kills them. It is a massacre at that point. God says, I'm going to use you to end an evil reign. And Jehu takes it a huge step past where God wants him to go. God never says, hey, by the way, you know, Jezebel, Ahab, they're terrible people. We've got to get rid of the kings. And I've got news for you. The only way you get rid of kings typically is through some killing. God never says, I want you to kill all the kids. He never says, hey, and by the way, I want you to kill these other people who kind of support it also. God was wanting reuniting, and instead Jehu takes it and turns it into this horrendous massacre. Now, think about if kids in the room, think of how much your parents would love you if they named you Columbine. Think of how much your parents would love you if they said, you know what? I What? It is a beautiful flower. But when I say... (laughs) When I say Columbine... Everyone in the room was not thinking beautiful flower, including Mr. Elliot, the pain in the rear. <laughs> Were you? I'm, I'm picking with him. He knows that. By the way, I get a text message. Was it you, Elliot, or was it you, Elliot? Okay, I couldn't remember which. So I want to make sure I have a number in my phone. Guys, um, if, if you were born and your mom said, you know, I've had this name in my family for, for generations, and I've always wanted to name a baby boy Auschwitz. Think of what your life would be like. That is the equivalent here, okay? God is sending a message that is true. But this child is not... Jezreel for us is like, oh, it's just a biblical name. But for the people there, every time they met this child, they would go, oh, that's a terrible place. That's a terrible place. Why would your parents name you that? God's sending a message here. So then the next child is born. This child is a daughter. And her name is Lo-Rama. Okay? Which means what? Not loved. Again. Okay, does anybody in the room know what your name means? Have you ever looked up the meaning? Mother Earth? Earth? Close enough. enough. Okay, you are Mother Earth. Okay, who knew? (laughs) So, somebody else. What? Okay, I thought you said normal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, okay, Allison's normal. <laughs> okay, noble. Somebody else? Yeah. Strong protector. All right, I know if something happens, I'm hanging out with William or Pete. Okay, anybody else? Okay, there, there, I didn't know that. Did you know that? Did you know that your name is the French Dervent of... So that doesn't count then. Okay. <laughs> Guys, see, we pick names that are going to be nice and good. Okay. You, you don't usually go, this is a terrible name. I'm going to name my child, you know, stupid. 
Why do you laugh? Stupid, it kind of flows off the tongue. Okay, I've heard some people that think their, their children's name is that. But we laugh because like nobody would ever, ever name their, their child that. Uh, I'm a big fan, and if Adam Holty was here, you, he, he's a big fan too. Many of you know that, that I and Adam Holty listen to the same podcast all the time. Uh, if you ever come to the small group that we're a part of, uh, all of the other people in the small group will be like, anytime I say something or Adam says something, they're like, what podcast are you quoting from? And one of those is, is a podcast called Freakonomics. If you've ever, ever read the book, they talk about this too. And they do a case study on two children where the father, in, in a fit of just being funny, thought he would name one child winner and the other child, go ahead and guess it, loser. How would you like your name to be loser? What, man? Okay. Yeah. Nothing would be a good name too. <laughs> Who's this? It's nothing. <laughs> Guys. God is sending a message here. And what do you think, when you hear this, what is this saying about, well, Hosea's relationship with Gomer? More importantly, what is it saying if, if they are an example of how God feels his relationship with Israel is? What is it saying about God's relationship with his people? Like you're not loved. And it's not because God's going, I don't love you. It's because... You're cheating on me. And it gets worse. See, sometimes we just read past these things in Scripture. But these names are there to convey the entire sermon. I should just be able to read the names and go, that's it. We're through. No such luck. But that should happen. Anybody remember the second son's name? Lo Ami. Anybody catch the meaning of that? In your tapestry Bibles, there's little footnotes there that say Here's what this means. But the wonderful thing is God doesn't want his scripture to be uh, something that you don't understand. So he usually just kind of lets it go and, and describes it there. And if you read the message, it goes, hey, name them this for. What does Loami mean? Yeah. All right. Think about this for just a little bit. If you see some friends and they have two kids, and the names get progressively worse. And the third kid, the dad goes, yeah, we're going to name that child not mine. What do you think that means? Not his. There's a really good chance. And you're going to, the more you read about Gomer, there's a really good chance this child is literally not Hosea's. And, and those of you who've been raised in church, those of you who've ever heard anything of Scripture, and I, I know some of us in the room are not believers, that we don't have a lot of, of history there, uh, you'll pick this up too. Because God again and again and again and again in Scripture says, you're mine. God, again and again, He claims those who are forsaken. One of my favorite theologians uh, says that Jesus Christ became the forsaken to claim the forsaken. That He went through hell to save those of us going to hell. That He became separate from the Father to save those of us who are separate from the Father. God, again and again in Scripture, is claiming people. But here, He's saying, not my people. It is an entirely different statement. It is a powerful statement. It is a scary statement. 
It, and the reason he's doing it is because he is comparing what the people of Israel are doing to a spouse cheating on the other spouse. Because it is the best example he has of what Israel is doing to him and the pain that it inflicts upon him. All right, I have not cheated on Pam. She has not cheated on me. And I am very, very thankful for that. So I do not have a personal experience in the sense of going through it myself. Some of us in the room do. I have, I don't want to say unfortunately, it is my honor to be with people when they hurt. It is my honor uh, to, to be a part of God bringing light and hope to incredibly dark situations. But I am never thankful that, that somebody has cheated on him. I'm there with them. Does that make sense? I am honored to be there, but I never just go like, wow, that's so awesome. I get to be in the room with somebody who's just really, really hurting now because somebody took their heart and just stomped on it. But I have been with far too many people. So, since I don't have first-hand experience, I'm going to share with you some first-hand experience I've had where somebody took my heart and stomped on it. 1977, a brilliant, wonderful man brought hope and meaning to a dark universe when he created this amazing movie. I don't know why you're laughing. I loved Star Wars, and I say love for a very specific reason, okay? I love Star Wars. I, I have gone to all six, and I say six because there's going to be a seventh. <laughs> but I have been to all six movies on opening night. In my parents' house, I have a full collection of the first three series of Star Wars trading cards. Yes, I have like literally a thousand Star Wars trading cards. Mint condition. Saving for that day when they are worth a million dollars and then you no longer need to tithe it all to tapestry. The rent will be paid off Star Wars cards, okay? See, the problem is, is that this brilliant, brilliant man, this wonderful man who did this amazing thing, he betrayed us by taking something that was great and turning it into something that is awful. Just awful. I mean, terrible. And it, it's not even enough for that. He, he took that awful thing and he was like, hey, I can make even more money off this. And now he has sold it to the Antichrist. And you don't even want to get me started on this, okay? <laughs> now, I, I'm laughing because to be honest, what we're talking about scripture here for some people in the room is just the most painful thing uh, you can possibly talk about. And I do not even mean to hint that this is anywhere near. This is bad. <laughs> Okay, when he when he got in the refrigerator and the nuclear bomb went off and he survived a nuclear bomb by being in a refrigerator, that's bad. Did I just did I didn't I didn't just ruin the movie for somebody, did I? Oh, so sorry. Actually, I didn't ruin the movie for you. I made it better by making sure you didn't watch it. <laughs> Guys, what I'm trying to get at point is some of us felt like we were stabbed in the back. I mean, this is how bad it was. My wife is the reason that I can say that I watched all six of the Star Wars movies on opening night because I wasn't going to go to the sixth one because I was so ticked off. I was so mad 
because he ruined something that was precious to me. And that is nothing compared to the thought of an adultery. See, I'm making fun of something that some people are like, oh, it's really, really bad. But that is nothing compared to true betrayal. See, we laugh about it because you kind of understand the pain because you know Lucas took something great and turned it into something terrible and it's just going to get worse and worse. But you could do that with every movie in history and it really still wouldn't be a, you know, a terrible thing. If you have been with somebody who has been betrayed by the person that they said, you are the most important person in the world to me, if you've had that happen to you, you know the pain. And God is describing what Israel is doing to him by saying it is like a spouse betraying another spouse. It's the only thing I can possibly think of that's more, more heinous in this world is a parent abusing their child. And some of you who've gone through this, you, can, you would speak much better than I am on it, okay? You would talk about the betrayal, the pain, the anger, the love that's still there, and then the anger over the love that's still there, the, the wondering if you can fix it, the wondering if you want to fix it. And God is describing what Israel is doing to him by saying it is like one spouse betraying the sacred promise that they have made to another spouse. And he doesn't just say that to Israel. He says that to us because when we sin, we go against the very thing we were created for. We were created to display His works. We were created to display His glory. But when we go against that, we choose another. Some of us in the room were, were uh, up in Rhinelander. I, I guess we were still in Rhinelander. We were up at Holiday Acres Resort. And, and we were there to see Drew and Kate get married. And they made promises to one another. And they said, I will be faithful to you for the rest of your life and the rest of my life. I make this promise and I make it before other people. And when you see someone make that promise, there's a lot of romance with it. But when you see someone live it out for 80 years, that's an amazing thing. Some people around us love the idea of romance. Some people, you know, like, I know so much about marriage. I've been married seven times. You know nothing about marriage. You know a lot about weddings. There's a huge difference between a wedding and a marriage. That's why if some of you in the room, I've done your, your premarital counseling. We do premarital counseling, and then we talk for 15 minutes about the wedding. Like, okay, what do you want? I'll do it. I don't care. We've done seven hours on the marriage. That's what matters. We were created to display God's work. And when we sin, we choose another. That's why again and again in Scripture, what's said is that when we sin, we don't just sin against the person that we might have sinned against. If, if I were to hit Allison because I thought she said normal instead of noble, I would never do that. You know that, right? Okay. Because if I hit you, you would just punch me right back in the nose. Yeah, and I, you hit me in the nose, it's gone. Okay. Just... Tears, it's a bad thing. Um, but don't laugh at me. <laughs> but if I did that, I not only sin against Allison, I sin against God because I was created to honor Him. And when I choose my own way, I'm choosing another. I was created to say God is first. His will is first for me. He is the one that I wish to live for and live with. And when I choose my own will or I choose the will of another, I am putting another God in front of him. I am committing adultery. I am splitting up my relationship that was supposed to be with God forever. 
And he looks at Israel and he says, you're not my people. I think sometimes we get so focused on the fact that God is forgiving, and he is, that we forget how much that forgiveness cost him and cost us also. I don't ever mean to make light. Some people get so focused away from grace. I believe God can and does forgive anything. Scripture says that he will forgive all sins other than blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I believe is to say God can't do what he says he can do. But I forget, I think sometimes we forget exactly how much that love cost him, how painful that love is for him. Scripture says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. God looks at Israel and looks at their sin and says, She has just committed adultery again and again and again. You read the rest of that passage and he describes divorcing Israel. Something that God says he hates. But God will not enable our sin. He will forgive us, but he is not there just to enable us. To like, oh, it's okay. Do whatever you want. I'm going to forgive you now. He's not some great big granddad up there. He's like, kids will be kids. No. His forgiveness hurts him not because he you know forgiving is hurtful but that pain that's involved in that imagine a spouse who has been betrayed still longing for and fighting for the spouse i think it's a beautiful thing that they fight for each other sometimes but that doesn't make it an easy thing it doesn't make it a painless thing in some ways it's probably more painful when a spouse fights for another spouse than it is to just say that's it i've had enough So God says this word. It's just right at the end of the the passage of Scripture we read. And if you read the second chapter, it is all describing this again. But he puts this word in. Yet. If you look, you'll see it at the very, very end. Because he says, yet. After he has just said, they are not my people. After he has just used this, this child as an example of, this child is probably not Hosea's. And he said, you will not be my people anymore. And he goes, yet. What comes after the yet? Yeah. You're not my people. Yet Israel will be like the sands of the seashore, which can't be counted. See, God says, I'm not going to enable you to do your sin. And he doesn't just say that to Israel. He says that to us. When we sin, we hurt him. But even in the midst of saying, not my people, he does not reject us forever because God loves to pull us in. That doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it something that's like, oh, go ahead. No, when he brings us in, he loves us too much to want to leave us the way we are. He wants to change us. 
And that is not just true of Israel. That is true of the church today. That is true of the church in the past. It is true of all of us who call on Jesus Christ and say He is our Lord. He wants us to follow Him and to become more and more like Him. Righteous and holy. This is what 1 Peter says. And I love because it is a direct reflection of Hosea. He, He says... But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, that's the way God works. He's not a wimp on sin. He actually takes the punishment on himself. But he doesn't want us to just take that like, oh, it's, you know, nothing. No worries. And that's so easy for us to do. His grace, his mercy should be changing us all the time. One of the things I see that happens in the church sometimes is it's the person who thinks they've been following Christ the longest that thinks that's a great thing to tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet. But in some ways... Those of us who've been following Christ longer, our sin may be more painful to him than than others. See, if you if you go out and you date somebody and, and you know that they've got a bit of a history, if they mess up some, well, you're like, oh, they're changing. But if they've been changed for 60 years and then they mess up, that's a very different thing. The guy uh, who is a prophet realistic he's not a prophet in the bible but he speaks prophetically um you you may have heard of him he's diedrich bonhoeffer he's from the 40s a lot of us in this room love what he writes a lot um and my small group loves what he writes but they don't like what he writes because he's a very difficult writer <laughs> he described it this way in, in a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which I would highly encourage you to read, I think there's a copy in the back, actually. It may have been taken already. If not, talk to me, and I have a copy that I will loan to you, not give to you. I may have a copy to give, but I definitely have a copy to loan. He says this. He says, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap, shake, cheap jack swears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be? If it were not cheap. See, so much of what he said there is true of grace. It has been prepaid. Jesus has paid the the price for it. But it's not paid in a sense of like, oh, don't worry about it. If you see a couple and one person just goes out and cheats all the time and the other person just says, come back. What do you think of the person who just says, come back? You probably think, wow they have some real pain in their life that they would just always take this junk back in their life. High school students, you probably see, and I'm going to gender stereotype here, and please forgive me for that. I'm trying not to. Uh, But you may see some girls who just let these guys treat them like trash and then always come back. Guys 
Okay, there is more physical abuse of guys than you know. It's just not reported as much. And so often people will just be like, oh, it's okay. I did it. God's not like that. Just because he's paid for the grace, just because he's paid the price that we could never pay, doesn't mean that it's somehow cheap, like some cheap trinket that you get at the dollar store. It is great and costly. We could never pay the price. But then he asks all of us in return. This is the way Bonhoeffer describes costly grace. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost the life, excuse me, cost God the life of his son. Ye were brought, bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. See, what God is talking about here is is not a cheap grace. Lo, Ami, you are not my people. God literally turns his back on Israel the whole time, hoping that they'll just kind of step to the side so he can get them again. But he's going to let them go to destruction if if they won't. He's not just going to say, don't worry, I'll just pick it all up. That's a call for us to change. That's a call for us to turn. And it's a call not just in certain moral aspects of our lives, but it's a call for us to change in our entire faith. When we put too much faith in our abilities, when we put too much faith in our resources, we choose a God besides Him. When we put too much faith in our friends, when we put too much faith in in our congregations, we choose a false idol. We commit adultery against the God who is worthy of being trusted. And we hurt Him. When we choose our own private sin rather than giving it over to God, that sin that we don't think is near as bad as other people's sin, we choose ourselves over Him. We commit adultery. As a minister, it's one of the most painful things I see. One person cheating on another. I think for God, it is the most painful thing he experiences. And we do it to him when we choose another lover. When we choose another God. So before I end, anybody have anything that needs to be added? Yes, ma'am. I have a question. When she married Hosea? Like, like before it hints. Okay. Is she openly promiscuous during the marriage? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's about to be a lot clearer in the next chapter. Might be. I don't know. If you if you choose somebody who other people say is bad for you, it could be because you're an idiot. 
could be because you see something that, that others don't. Sure, but you mean socially. Yeah, it could have been. The thing is, is and, and so often in Scripture, to be honest, Scripture doesn't talk about a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. It talks about the action. I think there's a message there too. It doesn't, you know, it's interesting to me. It doesn't say one word about how Hosea felt about marrying Gomer. But it says the action, and I think that speaks a lot. Um, to me, it speaks of the fact that quite often, I think we put so much focus on whether or not we want to obey God or not, and I think God cares a lot more about whether we do obey Him. As a parent, I don't care if, I, I, it's nice if my kids are like, you know what, I really want to do this because this will make dad happy. <laughs> but what really makes me happy is if they just do it. <laughs> that's not a, not a works-based thing. That's a relationship thing. In some ways, it's actually more loving if you do an action because you love this person rather than because you want to. If, if I bring home chocolate for Pam and it's allergic to me, or I'm not, it's chocolate would not be allergic to me. I'm allergic to chocolate. If I bring home chocolate to Pam and it, and it puts whelps on my fingers, come on, I'm getting major, major spouse points at that point, okay? If bringing home a treat to my wife, you know, inflicts pain on me, you're know, like, wow, Robert's all, or Robert's stupid. One of the two. If I bring home chocolate because, you know, somebody just gave it to me on the street, I'm like, oh, Pam, I'll take this. Well, that's okay. So it doesn't talk about. That, yeah, she probably was just because, you know, she's an adulterous woman is the way she described. That could have been one time. It's about to get really, really clear that while I don't know beforehand, she makes it blatantly clear she's promiscuous during the marriage. And and it's not going to be, there's no way you can make it more clear than the way it's going to be next week. Anybody else? Okay, then this is what I'd like to encourage you to do. One of the things that bothers me the most, and this doesn't happen here because I'm not the youth minister. Well, actually, I guess I am the youth minister. But this doesn't happen here because at the other churches I was a part of, which were um, more traditional established churches, I was the youth minister. I was an associate pastor, so I did all that stuff. But I was in charge of the youth program. And for those of you who were raised in church, you probably have experienced this. When I would preach, and it would be called preaching at big church, is the way they do it, Almost every time I would preach a sermon and I wouldn't do what most pastors did, which was to stand by the door so people had to walk by you and say good sermon and such. But people would still track me down and say something. And these sweet senior adults would almost invariably say the same thing, always say the same thing, which was, that's a really good sermon for the young people. I'm just so glad they were here to see this. Which was funny to me because most of the teenagers were like, Robert, I'm just so glad you said that to the adults. <laughs> because I wasn't preaching to the teens. They heard me all the time. And it, it crushed me. And the reason it crushed me was because it was like, you thought that you weren't here for you. It was like saying, you know, I want to take somebody to a movie so that they'll be changed by Schindler's List. But when you come to church, when, when you were in the presence of God, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to bring somebody else, but God wants to work on you. He wants to work on me too. God wants to work on me just as much as He wants to work on you when I'm reading Scripture for the sermon. It's not like, here, I'm going to impart knowledge to Elliot now. No, I'm speaking to you out of what God's speaking to me. So what I encourage you is this.
please don't leave here and go, you know, I love the fact Robert talked about the fact that, you know, God wants us to reject our sin and it hurts him. That's great. You know, other people need to know that. What I'm going to ask is, is that all of us this week pray one simple prayer. David prays, search me and know me, O God. And David, king of Israel, described as a man after God's own heart. And he prays, search me and know me, O God, and find out if there's any wicked way in me. That is a powerful, powerful prayer. Because the dangerous thing is, often God will do exactly what we ask him to do. What I would encourage you to do is once, once each day. You can do it more times than that. I mean, please don't be like, oh, I can only pray it once. Robert said once. Um, first off, none of y'all listen to me that much. <laughs> Second off, pray as many times as you can. But at least once a day during the next week, pray and say, God, just search me. Just you know, point out to me what there is in my life that is hurting you. And your sin might not be as big as someone else's sin in our eyes. But the thing is, your sin and your sin and my sin, as big or small as they are in the eyes of other people in the world, they are painful to God. Someone that I'm in love with, and I believe so many of you in the room are in love with him, and I would never want to hurt the people I love. And when I do, it hurts me. So what I'm going to ask you to do this week is just pray that prayer and let God reveal to you anything in your life. Let God reveal to me anything in my life that is where I'm choosing someone besides him. That's sin. Let's pray and let's sing to the one who is worthy, the one who hopefully all of us in the room who know him are trying to be faithful to. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you uh, that you are a God of yets. That even when we reject you, even when we do the very thing that hurts you, there's still that yet there. Yet you will still claim us. Yet you will still choose us. I pray this week that you change us to be more and more like your son. That you reveal in us anything that is is sinful. Anything in us that is rebellion. Anything in us that is choosing someone or something other than you. You give us the courage to see it as you see it. And you give us the courage to turn to you. I thank you that because of the yets that are in your scripture that we can trust that when we turn to you, you will grab us and claim us. Pray this in the name of your son who makes us your children. Because faith in him equals being a part of the kingdom of God. Amen. Please, let's sing to the one who's worthy. You can stand with us if you want. Hey, Will, can you turn my guitar on? That'll work. Gee.